Last Sunday, we wrapped up Paul's, the first kind of part of his defense of the reality and doctrine of resurrection in chapter 15, verses 12 to 19, where he unpacks at least seven terrible consequences. If there were no resurrection at all, that's where we've been. In the next section, he continues his defense of resurrection by describing what resurrection is and why it is necessary and even how it will occur and what will be accomplished because of it. And this, this is what we're going to focus on today. If you could take your Bibles, turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in verses 20 to 28. It's going to be a four-point sermon dealing with him defining and describing what resurrection is and, and what it'll accomplish. It's a wonderfully theologically rich section. Um, I found it to be probably one of the richest so far in the whole book. So right in the middle of chapter 15, you've got this incredible diamond of theological truth, biblical truth. So this is where we'll be today. I'm going to pray so we can get to work. Father, thank you for this morning and how you have engaged us with, with your means of grace already through prayer and, and the reading of Scripture. And I feel blessed already, Lord, that um, you are meeting with us in, in nurturing and feeding and taking care of your children and gracing your children. And so uh, may we, Lord, now as we worship you through the, the teaching and proclamation of your word, may we be attentive and wanting to hear from you during this time. And uh, may the word, we know that scripture says it won't return void, and we pray for that this morning. We want that promise and guarantee here today that as it goes out, we hear it, understand it, comprehend it, and it accomplishes all of your purposes in our lives. And so may we submit to you and yield to the authority of your word now, not to Phil's authority. I don't have any authority unless I'm in scripture. The scripture is the authority, and we want to submit ourselves to you now and to your word Teach us more about resurrection this morning. And I pray that the church is built up and encouraged during this time. We commit it to you and pray in Christ's matchless, beautiful name. Amen. Amen. So let's get right into it. We'll pick up where we left off and we'll look at our first point for this morning. And, and the first thing that, that we discover, what is resurrection? It really is very simple, according to Paul in the first line here, resurrection is truth. You know, he's talking about, he's been talking about how, what would happen if it, if it wasn't truth and if it wasn't a reality. And now he's just going to state very plainly that you guys are saying that, yeah, Jesus was raised, but you're probably not going to be raised. Well, look, if you say that, then nobody's going to be raised. If we're not being raised, then he wasn't raised in all this. So you're saying that resurrection as a whole is false. It's a false concept. It's a false theology. It's not biblical. And Paul just comes right out in verse 20 and says, it's truth. Very plainly, he says, but in fact, you're saying you're not sure, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he calls them the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So first point he makes here after talking about what will happen if we don't have it and challenging their unbelief and all this is that it's just truth. It's just flat out plain truth. He lists these horrific hypothetical results if there were no resurrection in 12 to 19 and now he's just reaffirming the resurrection of Christ. He's just declaring it as an absolute reality and truth. And as I said, it really wasn't the resurrection of Christ that was being directly challenged in the Corinthian church. It was the future resurrection of the saints. But when you challenge the resurrection of the saints, you directly challenge the resurrection of Christ. In writing, in fact, Christ has been raised, Paul was bolstering the inseparability between Jesus' resurrection and ours. And he's absolutely refuting the Corinthians' error. It's like he's saying it is truth that Christ has been raised, and it is also truth that you and we as believers will likewise be raised. This is what he's saying in verse 20. And to really drive this point home, Paul takes a moment to tie the resurrection of Christ to the biblical concept of first fruits. Before um, 
Israelites actually harvested their crop. Think Old Testament, but before Israelites harvested their crops, they were to bring a representative sample called the first fruits. And they had to bring those first fruits, a sample as to the rest of the harvest that was coming. They had to bring that first portion as an offering to the Lord, a, an offering of thanks that you're giving us our bounty, but they had to bring it to the priests. And it was literally an offering to the Lord, Leviticus 23, verse 10. The full harvest could not be made until the first fruits were offered. And this is really the point of Paul's illustration here. He is saying that Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection harvest of all the believing dead. You know, that for, in the Old Testament, the first fruits were that first portion of an entire harvest. And he is paralleling to that metaphorically. Christ is the first fruits of resurrection for an entire harvest of believers that will follow. This is what he's saying here. That's what it means by first fruits. The fact that Christ is called the first fruits here, it indicates that something else, namely uh, the harvest, the entire harvest or the rest of the crop, is to follow. So whenever you use that word biblically, first fruits, or that phrase in the Old Testament, the first thing that triggers in the mind of the Israelite or the devout, pious Gentile that loves Yahweh, there's something more to come. The first is coming, and there's a second and a third and a fourth. So that's the mentality, that's the idea, that's the theology of it here. In other words, Christ's resurrection, there's no way that it could be in isolation or not lead to ours as first fruits. Someone, a body of people, has the rest of the harvest must follow. That's Paul's point. And I think he's using this Old Testament language because there were some educated people in there. It's a Gentile church. There were some Jewish converts in there that would have understood this and could have helped to explain it. But he's using language that would have been familiar. You know, the, the whole region is an agricultural region, especially up and down Israel. So these are this is agricultural language, language that people would understand. He's saying that Jesus' resurrection, he's the first fruits, it absolutely will lead to cause or absolutely requires our own resurrection. His resurrection was part of the larger resurrection of God's redeemed. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, Thomas Schreiner wrote, Christ's resurrection certifies that dead believers will be raised later. So that's Paul's point, the first point. It's truth. And, and, and he's showing that it's truth by using first fruits language, Old Testament agricultural language. He's the first fruits, and everyone, there's an entire harvest. Steve, me, and Elsa, and Keith, maybe Cameron. We're all coming afterwards. We're all following. He's the first, and we are the next. That's what he's saying here. So that's the first point. It's truth, and he proves it through first fruits theology. Number two. The second thing he teaches them here is that resurrection is necessary. It's necessary. Verses 21 to 22. There has to be, because of the way things are, there has to be resurrection. There must be a resurrection. There must have been, there had to have been Christ raised and then the first fruits being, uh, the, the second fruits, if you want to call us that, being raised. There is a necessity in the world for some kind of resurrection is what he teaches. He says, and he explains why. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what is Paul pointing to here? He's going, he just pointed to the Old Testament by mentioning first fruits. Now he's pointing all the way back to the beginning. Genesis, that's what the word Genesis means, the beginning, the start. He's going all the way back to chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. What happened there? That's the fall of humanity. That's the fall of creation. Adam is the one who caused this fall, and he brought death into the world through sin. And since he is the original father and federal head, all his progeny, the entire human race, is likewise sinful and subject to death. And, and ultimately, Adam is the reason why it is appointed for man to die. He is the reason why 
Death is the, is the destiny of every man. That's two verses that I just quoted. Hebrews 9, 27, Ecclesiastes 7, 2. Adam, when he sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world and the result of sin, the wage of sin, the penalty for sin. What did God say? If you eat of it, you will die. It's death. And so it comes by a man. All of death comes into the world by a man. Adam, that is. There is a causal relation between the death of Adam and the death of his descendants. He died, and those who are in him shall likewise die. Okay? He's the reason why death is in the world. So it's the presence of death in the world that necessitates the need for resurrection. If you have death in the world... And, and the plan is to get rid of it, you have to have resurrection. It is the antidote. It is the thing that reverses it. It is the thing that destroys it, right? Because somebody has died and they've gone down into the tomb. Resurrection brings them back to life. It completely defeats the wage and work of death. And so resurrection is necessary because of the presence of death in the world. It is the antidote. It is the counter. It is the glorious reanimation of the dead. It is the bringing of the dead, not merely back to a state of life, but into a state of perfection and permanence. It is a life that never ends. It is eternal life. That's what comes to mind when we think of resurrection. So it is the exact opposite of death. But since death, in a sense, reigns supreme in the world, you know, you do a poll, you do a survey, out of 100 people, how many die? 100. The only antidote to that, the only reversal of that, the only defeat of that, the only destruction of that is resurrection. So resurrection is completely necessary. Now, you stop and just pause and think quickly on the Corinthian error, how severe it is. You reject your resurrection. When you reject your own resurrection, you're saying that you're going to stay in a state of death forever and ever and ever. And not only that, you're saying that Christ himself didn't rise. So very, very serious error. I think Paul's been illustrating how serious this error of rejection of resurrection is. So think in terms of the fall and Adam. He's the man that death came through. Through Adam came death, but Paul counters it with something extraordinary. He says, but through Christ comes life, comes the resurrection of the dead. And this is why Christ is sometimes called the second Adam in Scripture. Did you know that? You have the first Adam who completely blew it, sinned, brought death and sin and carnage and destruction and war and everything bad into the world. And then you have the second Adam who is Christ who did not bring, he brings in the antithesis to those things into the world. The opposite. You remember Adam and Eve live in this beautiful garden and they're tempted and they fall. Jesus, the first thing he does before he begins his ministry is he goes into the wilderness to suffer temptation just like Adam and Eve. But he didn't fall. He stood his ground. You see, so the first Adam blows it when temptation comes. The second Adam, man, he just obliterates that temptation and the devil has to flee from him. So he is the second Adam. I say he is the better Adam. When Adam was tempted in the garden by the serpent, he sinned and brought death into the world. But when Christ was tempted in the wilderness by the exact same serpent, the same devil, he stood his ground. Amen? In his life, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, every jot and tittle of the law, Matthew 3.15. In his death, he paid for our sins and trampled all principalities underfoot, putting them to open shame. 1 Peter 3.18, uh, Colossians 2.15, at his resurrection, he trampled death underfoot and secured resurrection and glory for all who trust in him for salvation. He is so much so the better Adam. He's the second Adam, but he is the superior, the supreme, the sovereign Adam in a sense. And so as there is a causal relation between Adam and death, there is a causal relation between the resurrection of Christ and that of all his people. Because he rose, we too shall rise. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. In fact, Ephesians 2.6 speaks of it as if it had already happened. It's already done, like we're already up there with Christ. 
right? It says, it says literally we have been raised and seated with Christ in heaven. That's weird because I'm standing in front of a wooden pulpit, a veneer pulpit in Modesto of all places. And you're here too. And somehow for believers, it's as if we've been raised and are already with him. It's, it speaks of it as past tense in Ephesians. That's amazing. How can this be true if our physical resurrection hasn't yet happened and we're still here and struggling and dealing with all the carnage and sickness and everything else? Well, I'll tell you, the verse is not a contradiction. What it is is it's about certainty. Our resurrection and physical presence with Christ is so absolutely certain, it's as if it has already come to pass. That's the meaning of Ephesians 2.6. It's, it's absolutely so certain. It's wrought in eternal truth. It will, it is so guaranteed to happen, it's as if it has happened. And in a way, it has happened spiritually. Right? In spiritual terms, these things have, in a way, come to pass. We, we are born again, which means to be born from above by the Spirit. John 3, 3 and verse 8. We have been raised and brought to life spiritually through regeneration. John 6, 63 and Ephesians 2, 5. We are called citizens of heaven. Philippians 3, 20. We're not called citizens that we're not called we will be citizens of heaven at some point. We are called, present tense, citizens of heaven. The Bible speaks of Christians, believers like us, as if it's already all come to pass. Therefore, we are at least, bare minimum right now, we are spiritually seated with Christ in heaven. We've been raised spiritually and we are spiritually seated with him. We are citizens of heaven. We're not, it's not that we're becoming that, we are that. Therefore, it makes much more sense for us to seek the things that are above and for us to set our minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Colossians 3, 1, 2. Why is that a necessity? Why is that important? Because we're citizens of heaven. We're already seated with him in a sense. We don't belong to this world any longer. I think the simplest way to understand what Paul is saying in verses 21 and 22 is this. The man... Adam brought death into the world through sin, and union with him is the cause of death. The God-man, Jesus, brought life into the world through resurrection, and union with him is the cause of life. Okay, if you're in Adam, you're dead, but if you're in Christ, you've been raised to new life. That's what Paul is teaching them here. Again, he's illustrating the importance of resurrection how can you say that it's not true if you say that you're dead and you're in your sin these are all the things that he's already said now what paul's teaching does here interesting interestingly as a side note is that it establishes that there's only two types of people in the world and typically christians do think that way there's christians and non-christians and that's not a wrong way to think about it because that's ultimately what there is but Paul's teaching establishes another way to express this reality. In the world, there's two types of people. There are those who are in Adam. They're still in Adam. And there are those who are in Christ. Those are your two categories of people. Those who are in Adam, they're spiritually dead. They'll die an eternal death. Those who are in Christ, they're spiritually alive. They'll be raised to eternal life through resurrection. And they have been raised spiritually already. Those are the only two categories that exist. It is the resurrection, point being, it is the resurrection of Christ that makes both spiritual life and resurrected eternal life possible and an entire reality. Without Christ and his resurrection, none of these things are possible. I mean, there's no salvation, there's no nothing. If Christ has not been raised, then we surely won't be raised. In Adam's progeny, the whole world still belongs to him. And everyone is still spiritually dead. And everyone will die physically. And everyone will experience eternal death in the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14. Think of the consequence, the ultimate consequence of no resurrection. That's it. There's only death. There's only destruction. There's only physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. This is how serious this is. So, Paul is basically saying that, right, resurrection, it is necessary because of the fall and because of Adam's progeny and because of the presence of death in the world. We have to have someone counter that, and that is exactly what Christ has done. 
I really feel like I need to re-preach this sermon on Easter. I've got like 10 Easter sermons now. And if I do any of them, somebody in the audience is going to go, you did this already. Her name will probably be Rachel. But this is such great material. I mean, we have an entire chapter committed to resurrection. I love it. Okay, third point, number three, resurrection, right? Resurrection is now patterned. Verse 23, it is patterned. It has a pattern that it will follow. Or as it says in the text, it is ordered a certain way. And this is exactly what he says in verse 23. Look at what he says. But each, he's talking about the resurrection, how it'll play out. He says, but each in his own order. For, and it says, Christ the firstfruits. Remember, he's first. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You stop there. There's your pattern. There's your order. We know that God is a God of order, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. We learned that in the previous chapter. And he has, literally as a God of order, he has established a sovereignly, he has, he has sovereignly established a pattern for all things, but in particular here, a pattern for resurrection. The first to be resurrected is Christ, right? He's the first fruits. And we know that this occurred on the third day following his death. Matthew 28, 1 to 10, and Mark 16, 1 to 8, and Luke 24, 1 to 12, and John 20, 1 to 10. And then it's expressed in a whole lot of epistles and other places. Not in the chronology like in the Gospels, but it's, it's everywhere. It's even in the Old Testament pointing to it. Notice again how this is the second time we see it here that Paul calls Christ the first fruits. He did it already, and now he's doing it again. As I stated earlier, he's drawing this analogy from the Old Testament. And we, we know, we just learned that first fruits is an agricultural term that signified the arrival of an entire or the entire harvest. And when it comes to resurrection, Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection signifies the coming of an entire harvest of resurrected believers. So, the sovereignly established resurrection pattern is Christ first, and then, as notice the detail, if you're wondering when this resurrection will occur, Paul tells everyone, and then at his coming, or we know that's the second advent, his second coming, he says, who will be raised then? Those who belong to Christ. Okay? Now, there is another group. So you have Christ the first fruits. He came up first. And then you have another group. You have believers at Christ's return. There is a second group that will be resurrected along with believers that Paul does not mention here. Why doesn't he mention it here? Why does he exclude this group? Well, it's because his focus in chapter 15 is on the resurrection of Christ and resurrection of believers. He's not really, I mean, there's some judgment terms in the passage, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you're doubting your resurrection, which puts the resurrection of Christ in jeopardy. He's talking about believers in Christ. He's not talking about the rest of the world here. That's why it's not mentioned. But there is a second group, and it's those who have died in Adam, unbelievers, right? So when Christ comes, he's the first to rise, and he did that 2,000 years ago. When he returns, believers and unbelievers alike will be raised to life. Those who have died in Christ, those who have died in Adam. And, and those who have died in Christ, they will be raised to glory, right? They will be given glorious resurrection bodies modeled after his, the body that he rose into. And th that won't be the case for those who die in their sin, unbelievers, those who died in Adam. No, when he comes back, they're not raised unto glory, but unto judgment and eternal destruction. It's, it's tragic. It's terrifying to ponder. Uh, Matthew 25, 31 to 46 speaks to this. John 5, 28 to 29. And 2 Timothy 4, 1. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. There's other passages that speak to this. So the pattern, according to God's sovereign plan, is Christ the first fruits. And if you want to call them fruits, believers are the second fruits. And then unbelievers would be the third fruits. But I believe it all happens in sequence right then. I mean, Jesus already rose. When he comes back, all of the dead rise, believing dead and unbelieving dead. How many resurrections are there? Well, some say three, four, whatever. I believe there's only, there's only two, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of 
all of humanity, all of passed away dead humanity. Uh, let's move to the fourth and final point. So that was the very simple fact that resurrection is patterned. Probably a good point to make to these Corinthians since, again, they're doubting their own resurrection. Oh, really? Well, the first fruits was first, and, and then you guys. What are you talking about doubting it? And then unbelievers. Is that who you're going to be among? That's kind of scary. That's his point. Number four, and this is the, the most theologically rich portion in challenging portion. It's a larger section. Resurrection, number four, resurrection is restorative. This is another reason why resurrection is necessary. It's restorative. Verses 24 to 28. I'll just read those four verses and try to explain it the best I can. Beginning at verse 24, Paul has just talked about how believers will be raised at the coming of Christ. And then he says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he accepted who put all things in subjection under him. There's an exception made there. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That way God may be all in all. So you can already tell by the wording, even in the ESV, it's challenging, but it's kind of beboppy and all over. And it's like, what, is God, what exactly is he talking about here? Well, let's, let's give it a shot. What Paul is doing is he takes a moment here. He feels that it's totally necessary to give an eschatological um, explanation to resurrection and what its outcome will be. Right? He's given them, hey, you're going to be raised, and Christ is the first fruits, and then you, and then unbelievers, whatever. And he's given all this defense. And now he's giving kind of an eschatological end times view of what resurrection produces. So it really does fit the context. But he's taking a moment, in simpler terms, to describe what's going to happen at the return of Christ and the resurrection of believers and unbelievers alike. He says, then comes the end. That's how he introduces this whole subject here, this whole passage, this challenging passage that a great many have gotten very right and a great many have gotten very, very wrong. And he says, then comes the end. And this is where the challenges enter in. It's like, what does the word then mean? To me, it's always meant next, right? I mean, when you say then, you're kind of loading up what's going to take place next. I mean, that's the simplest way to understand it. But there are scholars that do interpret this phrase and that word then in a lot of different ways. Uh, some maintain uh, that the word then it just represents an interval uh, between Christ's coming and the actual end, right? In this case, uh, another resurrection may occur when the end actually arrives, when unbelievers are raised. And then because of the, the way they view this, one could posit maybe a millennial kingdom or a thousand-year reign between Christ's coming and the end of history. A lot of it is hinged on that word then. It might mean about a thousand years. This is the idea. I mean, that's a long then, if you ask me, but that's one way that people look at it. So it, maybe it represents a very, very long interval between the second coming of Christ, and the actual end. Uh, in this, if this is the case, another resurrection would probably occur at the end when unbelievers are going to be raised and judged. Uh, alternatively, the end could be construed as taking place immediately when Christ returns. The Greek, and this is, this is where it gets really interesting, and this is where I start to scratch my head and wonder why I used to, and a great many still do, view then as a very long interval. Because when you look at the original language, that's not what it indicates. The Greek word for then is very simple. It's E-I-T-A, eta, or ita. And it, it does denote a sequence, but the sequence of time that it denotes virtually no interval whatsoever. There's an immediacy in the Greek word. 
And this is how it's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament at Proverbs 7.13, where the reader is warned about adulteresses. It says, then, that's Eta, she caught him and kissed him. The idea of an adulteress grabbing onto some guy and kissing him, and now he's in big trouble. Okay, so she didn't catch him and then wait a thousand years, then give him a kiss. It was immediate, then, Eta, immediate, something that immediately follows. And this is also how it's, the word Eta is used in the New Testament at Luke 8, 12, where Jesus is describing the parable of the sower. The text says, the ones along the path are those who have heard, then Eta, the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So there's two examples. Could I have given you more? Sure. I want to be sensitive to my dispensational premillennial friends here, but... The word in general means right after. This idea of a very, very long interval doesn't really fit with the text. It doesn't fit with our text either. So it's used that way in the Greek translation of Old Testament. It's used that way in the New Testament. Of course, premillennialists and dispensationalists say Eta refers to a long, long interval of time. And they do this because it, they have to, really, if they want to maintain this idea of a thousand-year reign of Christ, a thousand-year millennial kingdom. They've got to take texts like that and and have it mean that to support that view, right? They, they know that they have to prove that theology from Scripture, and so they'll take things like this and, and make it work for that. But sadly here, that Greek adverb is not used in that way in other places. So, eh, right? Plus, Paul never mentions a millennium, never mentions an interval between Christ's coming and the end anywhere in any of his writings. Never once does he hint toward a millennial kingdom or a thousand-year reign of Christ only. Never once. Not in his writings at all. You have to go to other places to get that. Of course, they do land here and try to use Eta for that. So, I don't know. I just say based on these facts, these simple facts, that it's nowhere in Paul's writings and that Eta means right after... Uh, in, in both the Septuagint and in the New Testament. I think according to the context as well, the better way, the best way to interpret Eta then, right here in our text, is to say that when Christ comes, then the end immediately follows. The things that Paul is describing will happen right when he comes back. Will there be a sequence? Yes. He'll do this, and he'll do this, and he'll do this, but it's all going to happen consecutively. There's not going to be a span of time between them. And I know that makes some of you guys that think about the millennial kingdom cringe a little bit, and that's okay. You're still my brother. I love you. You just need to repent and be all mill, but it's okay. You don't have to. So it's one way to keep looking at me like, I will kill you after the service. Um, we want to be the best scholars that we can be. And I think both sides make some good arguments. But I think in this particular text, you cannot make the argument for a thousand-year kingdom. You just can't. So maybe you can from other places, great, but you can't do it here. So let's think of it like that and still be friends, okay? So now notice here what Paul says in verse 24. It says, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Okay, so this is apocalyptic wording. This is apocalyptic end times, blowing everything up language. This is, this is Armageddon in speech, right? That, that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing that. He's literally saying when he comes back, this is what he's going to do. He's going to smash and conquer and destroy. There's going to be warfare. It's apocalyptic end of the world language. He's saying when Christ returns, he will literally destroy every nation, every adversary, every principality that's demons and Satan and everything else. This would be the war of wars or the war to end or that will end all wars. This thing is going to make the deal in Ukraine or in Israel and it's just going to make it look like uh, uh, it's a school fight at lunch. There's nothing like this apparently, right? This is literally what people call the Battle of Armageddon, right? Remember the movie with Bruce Willis and the meteor? Well, this is way beyond that. But this is, this is where that language, it comes from Revelation, but this is what they apply it to. They see Christ coming back, whether it be before a thousand years or at the end of it, they see this massive conflict 
where, where all the world's militaries and all the adversaries of Christ line up in a particular valley with all their tanks and helicopters and everything else to fight against Christ when he returns. That's the idea. That's the concept of, of Armageddon. At least I would say, I don't think that's what it is biblically, but I think that's what people think it is because that's what we've been taught by our dispensational friends and all that. But this is the language that, that would be tied to Armageddon in apocalyptic language. It's, it's the big one. It's the big battle. Now, that word Armageddon is actually the, the Greek version of Megiddo. So, so the, the original word is Megiddo, and it is a particular place, and the Greek iteration of it would be Armageddon. So Megiddo is called Armageddon in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Megiddo, New Testament, Armageddon. Think of it like that. Same place. Okay, so you see this in Revelation 16, 14 to 16. It's where the kings of the world assemble to battle against God. You know, we're going to take him out finally. They assemble at Armageddon. They assemble at Megiddo. That's the Hebrew word. Now, here's where it gets really, really interesting. And I bring this up not to bolster like new views that I have or something, but it is what Paul is talking about. So contextually, it's not me, you know, reaching out to find a way to talk about something I'm very excited about. I've never been more excited to talk about the end of the world. Okay, you're a sociopath, Phil. Not something you should be looking forward to, right? I am looking forward to the return of Christ, however, aren't we? And if that happens then, I guess i got to look forward to that too, by default. Point being, how many of you know your Old Testament pretty well? You think you do. Did you? Okay, so we've already said that Megiddo is a literal place, and it's rooted in the Old Testament. It has a New Testament meaning. It's referenced in Revelation 16 called Armageddon. How many of you know that in the Old Testament, it is a real place and there was an actual battle that transpired there? Did you know that? You see, when we think of it in Revelation terms, we think of it as being purely futuristic. But it's not futuristic. It could be. But it's not entirely futuristic. What John is doing in chapter 16 is he's referencing something that has already transpired. There was a fierce, terrible, horrible battle that took place at Old Testament Armageddon called Megiddo. And it happened during the reign of one of Israel's greatest kings, King Josiah. Remember the guy became a king when he was like nine? It's like, how's he going to rule over us? Wait, he's way better than the 37-year-old we had last year, right? So this guy becomes king. There is a monster-sized battle between the two superpower nations, the most powerful nations, kingdoms in the world at that time square off at Megiddo and have a, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers down there and chariots and battle horses and soldiers and sling throwers and, you know, archers. It is the battle of all battles that takes place at Megiddo during Josiah's time. And um, so it was... It was actually Pharaoh Necho II. He was the Egyptian emperor or pharaoh. He led his army to Carchemish, that's northern Syria, that's the region, to join with his allies, the fading Neo-Assyrian Empire, against the surging Neo-Babylonian Empire. So we know that Babylon became a, under Nebuchadnezzar, became a superpower. Well, just prior to that, these two other kingdoms were battling against it to try to stop it because it was threatening world domination. And so they all go to Megiddo to square off. And this is the war of wars, probably the largest war in Old Testament history up to this point. It is the battle of battles. And Josiah wasn't involved in it, and he decides to go observe the battle because he has kind of aligned himself with one of the, one of the forces. And he, he goes to observe the battle. And he's spotted by Neko's, Pharaoh Necho II's forces. Soon as they see him, they kill him. They waste him. The, the archers line up and just launch a volley at him. And he's killed and he's pierced and he dies in his chariot. And this is a guy that wasn't engaged in this battle. He was just going out. This is like me when there's a crash at the corner and I go down to watch. <laughs> what is this? 
you know, and then a car hits me. That's what happened to him. He was just there as an observer, and but but he doesn't have a good relationship with Neko, and he is at, at odds with Neko. Neko sees him, and I mean, this is what you do if you're a ruling superpower. You see a king who's opposed you, you kill him on the spot, and that's exactly what happens to one of the greatest Israelite kings ever. Josiah was amazing. He's the one that led. The, the, you thought the Reformation happened in 1500. The Reformation, the first one, kind of happened back then during his day. They found the scroll in the temple, and they started reading it, started studying the word. He brought back the Passover. This guy was amazing. Went around and tore down all of the Asherah poles and all of the Baal, or if you want to call him Baal, like a hay bale. That false god tore down all of his shrines and altars. And this guy was amazing. I feel like he was a better king than Solomon. And in some ways better than David, because we know some of the things that David did. This is a, an amazing king who is literally murdered. It was a terrible tragedy because, as history tells us, as the Old Testament tells us, Josiah was one of the most righteous monarchs of Israel and Judah ever to live. Okay, so now that we know the history and the context, and we know that a real battle took place at Armageddon slash Megiddo, and an amazing king was killed. Now we can know why John is using that language in chapter 16 of Revelation. He uses Armageddon, Megiddo, in Revelation 16. What, what is the entire, first of all, what is the purpose of the entire book of Revelation? Is it just to forecast what's happening in Palestine today? It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with encouraging embattled believers who are suffering in chapter 1, a tribulation that John himself is sharing in. Did you know that the book of Revelation is far less about how all the future will play out and far more about how to encourage believers in the midst of the worst possible persecution and suffering? Did you know that? That is the purpose of the book. Some of us now see the book of Revelation as the bookends of church history. It is an encouragement to embattled believers from the beginning of the church to the very end of the church age. It is the history book for the church. But what it does is it highlights every, all these various types of adversaries that will rise up against the church and inflict harm on it and on Christ. That's the way that I now view Revelation. It's far less of a future book and far more of a, it's apropos and current. It's describing what we're going through and what the church has always gone through and what it will go through till Christ comes back. It's a fascinating way to look at the book, and it's a fascinating way to interpret the book. Point being, John is using this language of this previous battle in chapter 16 to encourage his readers. Again, Revelation 1.9, they're embattled. They're suffering under the great tribulation, under a terrible tribulation. What does he want them to know in chapter 16? He wants them to know that the world has always arrayed itself against the righteous. And sometimes it seems to prevail with the death and murder of good King Josiah. But it will actually never, ever, ever actually fully prevail. First of all, it will never prevail against the greatest king. It's not Josiah or David, but the king of kings. What is Josiah really he is a foreshadow of the greatest righteous king that can be destroyed by nobody. So that's, that's in this chapter 16 here. It's the idea that, look, sometimes the church goes through a lot, believers go through a lot, and sometimes it seems like evil is prevailing. Look at the death of Josiah. He was a wonderful king. But know this embattled revelation believers that it'll never ever the world and the devil and the demons and all of the evil will never prevail against the greatest king the king of kings jesus christ nor will it ultimately prevail against the church that's the message of chapter 16 it's not about a future war it is drawing from a historical war to encourage how do i know this to be certain Go to chapter 16, read the story, and tell me where the battle occurs. There is no mention of the battle. It just says the kings of the earth arrayed themselves. There's no mention of the battle. Even if there was a future battle, or if, even if there was a future event 
where all, you know, all the kings of the earth and everything, even if the Disby view is right and they all line up, there is no battle actually mentioned. Why is that? Who the heck can fight against Christ? Do you think the tanks are going to work against him? Come on. There's not going to be a battle. There's going to be a slaughter. If there is, in fact, a conflict, it will be a slaughter. What does it say in Revelation 1 when Christ comes in glory as a soldier, as a weaponized soldier? He opens his mouth and a sword comes out of his mouth. That's the word. That's how he destroys his adversaries. So if there is a future conflict, it's only Christ conflicting against the adversary and destroying them with his word. If he spoke all things into existence through a word then he can speak them out of existence with the same kind of word. There is no battle mentioned in 16. It only sounds like there's going to be one. And I think that the reference really has to do with, with 2 Kings and that story and the encouragement of believers. I think that's the point. Using it to encourage embattled believers that, yes, we suffer, and yes, some of us are martyred and killed like good old Josiah, but nobody's going to kill the king of kings and nobody's going to wipe out the church no matter what Satan arrays against it, no matter what he aligns against it. It doesn't matter if it's governments, political movements, the LGBTQ mafia. It doesn't matter. The Bible says, Jesus says himself from his own lips, that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. That does not mean that the gates of Hades will attack the church. That means that when the church comes against the gates of Hades, they won't be able to stand against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, Christ is the conqueror, and nothing can stand against him. It doesn't matter if it's in the future or in the past. Sure, he allows some of his beloved to die in the battle. Of course he does. And, and, and they're, the, they, they're the seeds of evangelism, all the martyrs. This is a phenomenal text that Paul is giving us. And it's given me a wonderful opportunity to expound these views to you. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Nothing's going to prevail. There is no mention of battle in 16 because nobody can fight against God. Come on, the nations rage. Oh, we're going to get you. We're going to get you once and for all. Psalm 2.1, and then in Psalm 2.4, it says, God sits on his throne in heaven and laughs. Nobody can stand against Christ. Nobody. So if there is something that's going to happen, it's only going to be him knocking down his enemies and adversaries. When Christ returns, there won't be a battle. He will slew his adversaries with the two-edged sword. And, you know, there will be some kind of battle because he's going to destroy the nations. He's going to wreck all the nations, including one called Israel, because it's apostate. So there will be some kind of conflict. I just don't know if it's going to be like this Armageddon thing where they're actually trying to fight him. He will slew his adversaries with the two-edged sword that comes from his mouth, his omnipotent words, Revelation 1.16. He speaks, they all die. After this, verse 24 says, he will deliver the kingdom to the Father. And we call that, typically, we call that the eternal state. Some put that after a thousand years. Some put it right then when he comes back. Paul has it in sequence with his return. He doesn't have it delayed through that weird interpretation of eta. It's just going to happen right then. In verses 25 to 26, Paul describes the reign of Christ. He says he will reign until he has put all his adversaries under his feet and until the last enemy, that's death, is finally obliterated. Now, some do say, as I've been saying, they think this is going to happen after the millennium or after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And one of the things that I, I don't care for that view and when I had it myself, I had great questions concerning it, is that it does, in a way, imply that Christ is not reigning as king now. No, we used to sing a song, and it says, he's coming to reign. That's not proper theology. He's not coming to reign. He reigns. He is king now. So, we got, you know, when you talk, start talking about how it's delayed, and then eta, it means later, and there's a, a pause, and he comes, and then he'll reign for a while, and, and then he won't reign. I mean, whatever it is, it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't jive. It doesn't work with it. He, he is the king now. And guess what he's doing right now? And this is going to blow your mind. 
Guess what he's doing right now as king? He's defeating his enemies right now as I speak. And you're saying, well, where is he wiping out this and that? And why is Israel having all this trouble? And he is, he is, he is dealing with his enemies right now. It's guaranteed. Okay? I want you to think with me for a moment. There are two ways to defeat an enemy. You can crush them in death, which is precisely what Jesus will do upon his return. Amen? Is that the kind of defeating of an enemy that comes to mind automatically and naturally and organically for us? Yes. When we think of defeating an enemy, we think of taking a sword, running them through, blasting them with an AR, blowing them up with a tank. That's what we think of. Bunker, buster, whatever, right? That is one way to defeat your enemy. But there is another way to defeat your enemy, which is precisely what King Jesus is doing now. It, is, it does not have to do with crushing your enemies. It has to do with converting your enemies. What a thought. You can actually take them and convert them so that they stop fighting on enemy forces and become Christian soldiers. Did you know that? There's two ways to defeat an enemy. You can smoke them or you can convert them. Which way is Christ doing that today? He is in the business of converting his adversaries. I was a marksman for some false god 20 years ago. And what did he do? Did he crush me under his foot? No, he certainly could have. But he chose to convert me and to make me a soldier for his army. I switched teams. Did you know this is what they do, used to do in antiquity? A lot of times they would spare the soldiers and retrain them and have them. This is exactly what Christ does. So you can crush them or you can convert them. And he is in the business of converting them now. He is turning his enemies into his soldiers through the Spirit. 2 Timothy 2.1 where Paul says, like a good Christian soldier. That's where that military language comes from, ladies and gentlemen. It is a terrible, terrible mistake to say or to even imply that Christ is not reigning as a conquering, as the conquering king of kings right now. It is a mistake to say that he is not reigning. It is a mistake to say that he will reign in a better way in the future. It is a mistake to say that he isn't dealing death blows to his adversaries now either. And that is not to say that he doesn't crush some adversaries today. He does. Doesn't he? He does. Sometimes an adversary just suddenly dies. And we say, oh my goodness, that guy's dead now. Maybe that is the crushing of an adversary by Christ. So he can do it either way today, but we know that he's mostly in the business of converting them. Side point. But it is a mistake to say that he's not reigning. It is a mistake to call him anything other than the conquering king of kings right now. He is that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Right, Matthew 28, 18. That authority has been given, and he is expected to utilize it now, not later when he comes back, not, not only for a thousand years, then there's some weird pause. Now, he has all authority as the conquering king now. In fact, all judgment has been given to him. John 5, 22, he has in his hands the judgment of the living and the dead right now. It's not something he will obtain, it's something that he possesses. Where is he seated? At the right hand of the majesty. That's not a spot for a coming king. That's not an inauguration pause place for someone who's going to reign. That is a seat for one who reigns in all power and majesty right now. Amen. Trust me. Hebrews 1.3 speaks to that. He is now reigning and ruling over the cosmos with an iron scepter. Psalm 2, 8 to 9, Revelation 2, 27. All things were created not only by him and through him, but for him to rule over heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, Colossians 1, 16. It's all under his sovereign kingship as I speak. And he's doing with it whatever he pleases. King Jesus' footstool is literally being fashioned as I preach. He is 
crushing enemies now and making them a footstool. He is converting them and making them a footstool under his benevolent sovereignty and rule. He is doing it now as I speak. He's not going to just do it in the future. He's doing it now. And when it is all completed upon his return, he will finally destroy the last enemy, death, along with Hades by casting them in, by flicking them into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14. You know, at the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus conquered absolutely 100% spiritual death. It's when he comes back that he'll conquer and obliterate physical death. So we do have to wait until he comes back to get rid of that. But he's already dealt a death blow to spiritual death. I am spiritually alive because of his resurrection. If you're in Christ, so are you. His footstool is being fashioned and built right now. In verse 27, it says that God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ. Uh, and, it, and it does say, with the exception of himself, that is God the Father. Christ is king over creation. He's not king over the Godhead. The Godhead is ruled by no one. The Godhead rules. It doesn't get ruled, right? I just love it when people are always giving the Godhead all these commands. You're going to do this for me, and you're going to do that for me, as if they rule over the Godhead. You don't rule over diddly squat. The Godhead rules over you. They're all equal co-regents and co-leaders. They all have the same, the, the same authority and the same sovereignty. One isn't over the other. But this text that we're looking at, and through the incarnation, we do see Jesus, the God-man, subordinate himself to the Father, don't we? We do. And this text speaks to that as well. In verse 29, Paul describes another example of the Son's subordination to the Father. When history comes to a close at the second advent and everything is fully and completely subject to the Son, Paul says, kind of similar to with the incarnation where the Son subjected himself to the Father, this is another moment where the Son will subject himself to the, to the one who put him in charge of all things, to the Father. He will hand over the kingdom to the Father. Okay. A lot of people think that's when the reign of Christ will end. No, 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 no. That's not when it ends. Will it actually end when he hands over the kingdom to the Father? No. You must understand the reign of Christ is everlasting. Daniel 7, 14, And to Christ, or to he, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It won't end, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That, that is a prophecy about the coming of Christ and the eternal state, the kingdom he will establish in that moment. Luke 1, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Hebrews 1, 8, but of the Son, speaking of Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. In 2 Peter 1, 11, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied, uh, supplied to you, eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Handing over the key, handing over the kingdom does not mean that here it's your turn, dad, and he no longer reigns. He will always reign supreme. The reign of Christ will not end when he gives the Father the kingdom. He will reign with the Father in Trinitarian glory. This was eternally designed for him. Now you have to say to yourself, what does this last section have to do with resurrection? Because that's the previous text, that's the context, that's the whole point of the chapter. We're talking about an, an eschatological reality that will happen when Christ comes back and all these things will take place and I think more immediate than delayed. And what does it have to do with resurrection? Well, Paul is describing the restoration of all things in the context of Christ's resurrection. In his, or it is, I should say, it is his resurrection that makes this restoration not only possible, but an entire truthful full-blown reality. Adam brought death and darkness and destruction into the world through sin, but Christ has brought life and, and light and restoration into the world through resurrection. So much so that uh, the end result of his resurrection and, and, and uh, the end result of his resurrection, it will end up being not a rehabilitated world, 
but actually a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 1 to 2. The restoration that Christ shall bring through his resurrection. It's not remodel. It's all things new. That's what will happen when he comes back. And that's what he will hand over to the Father. During that incredible vision that John found himself in, and, you know, obviously he's being told multiple times in Revelation to write these things down, write these things down, and he's writing down what he's seeing in this dreamlike vision, however it played itself out. During that vision, he finds himself standing before the throne of the Almighty. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? I think he's just blinded by the the glory and the light of God's glory coming off of the Father. And he's standing there in front of the throne. He's probably trying to make things out, but he can tell he's standing in front of thrones, trying to write down whatever. And then he hears a voice, boom, from the middle of the throne. And it says, behold, I am making all things new. That is what Christ will do when he returns. It's a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem that he will hand over to the Father to co-rule with for all eternity. That's it. The resurrection of Christ is not only the cause of our future resurrection. Praise God, he's the first fruits and we come down the pike later. I'm so pumped about that. But it's not just the cause of our future resurrection, which is what we tend to focus on. It is the cause for total restoration. All things new. That's why Paul is talking about the eschatological outcome of resurrection in the text. What an amazing thing. You know, it's because Christ is going to make all things new and hand it over to the Father at his return after he's subdued all the adversaries and done all the other things that are mentioned in this text. It's going to make, he's going to make all things new. And I think somehow creation knows this. I mean, creation doesn't typically have a brain, right? I mean, how does Half Dome know it's coming? But all creation seems to understand this somehow because it's literally waiting with eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed in the end. And what that reference is, is Christ coming back and all of the sons and daughters of God being raised. You see, creation longs for this because the current version of us pollutes, destroys, abuses, uses the creation, misuses the creation. No, I'm not a Greenpeace guy. I'm not marrying a tree. Don't worry. But when Adam fell, he caused creation to be subjected to the futility of sinful men. And even creation itself waits for the resurrection of believers, which are part of the all things new. You will be made entirely new. You've been made new spiritually right now. You're a new spiritual creature. You're a new creation. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. That's you spiritually. But you're still the same Diane. You're still the same Phil, belly and all. You're still the same Dustin. He's lost weight. Right? You're still the same Kelly. Kelly's like, don't talk about my hair. I won't. You're still physically you. But when Christ comes, he will make all things new. And the first thing that he makes new is you. And then a creation. And then everything. It's all remade and and beautiful and perfect. It's going to be better than Eden. Everyone says, we need to get back to Eden, right? We need to get back to the garden. I think it was... uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash that wrote a song about that. Well, we don't need to go back to the garden. We need to go to the new garden because the new garden, the new Eden, the new world, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth, it'll be far superior to anything that we've ever seen, and it can never be subjected to sinful futility again. All things new. That's what's coming when Christ comes. You and me new. Everything new. Maybe we'll have a church building by then. (laughs) We won't need one because we have Christ right there in our midst. So creation waits with eager longing for the return of Christ because then and only then will the sons of God, you and I, 
be revealed in glory through resurrection, and the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God as all things are made entirely new. Romans 8, 19 to 21. Let's quickly recap. Resurrection is truth. Resurrection is necessary. Resurrection is patterned. Resurrection is restorative. Thank God that it is restorative, right? This is Paul's message in verses 20 to 28. May our hope be firmly fixed upon the return of Christ. He is coming to raise believers unto glory and unbelievers unto everlasting, under judgment and everlasting contempt. We pray for our adversaries. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. He is coming to defeat his enemies, and he will with a, with a word or two. He is coming to completely destroy the last enemy, death. It'll be nice to live in a kingdom where there is no death. He is coming to make all things new, and he will hand over the kingdom to our great God and Father, and the Godhead shall reign forever and ever and ever in Trinitarian glory with the patriarchs, with the prophets, with the apostles, and with the saints. That's us. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen.